Campfire Classics is a classic literature podcast. However, your hosts will occasionally use not-so-classy language and immature humor to describe very mature situations. As such, listener discretion is advised. Hi, I'm Ken Sandberg. And I'm Heather Michelle Lawler. Welcome to Campfire Classics, where we try to read those books that look really good on your shelf. It's Monday. download the podcast and listen i'm just curious and like if you're someone who downloads it when it first uh drops but then listens to it later like when when do you listen what is your podcast day <laughs> what's your what, what is your campfire classics habit how do you um how do you uh how do you meet that fix how do you fill up your ears with delightful <laughs> ridiculousness with campfire classics and when yeah yeah, I don't know. Inquiring minds and such. Basically, Ken and I want to know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so send us an email or go to one of our social medias. And uh, yeah, that's that's yeah. And, and that's it. Thank you for coming. <laughs> and drop us a line. Uh, got um, got a, a couple of ideas, a couple of things kicking and brewing that will be going up. Um, at least first on uh, the 5050 Arts Production Patreon. 5050 Arts Production, for those of you who don't know, are uh, is the, the name of our sort of umbrella uh, production company. So if you want to support us, you can do it there. But got got a couple of things in the old artistic crock pot um, that'll be heading up that way soonish. Really? Hopefully. We do? Well... <laughs> You you promised the people a calendar. I know. Have you that, ordered that will your be, ears? That will be coming up, um, hopefully in the next couple of months. And uh, and one of the things that we um, agreed to for patrons of a certain level is a uh, music video at their request, and one that um, my mom put in a while ago and said, when you have a chance, is something Queen-inspired, as in the band Queen. And so I've got some uh, some things of brewing in the old oh, brain yes, space. Oh, yes, yes. Is that why you're working on that? Yes. Okay. That's, that's part of it. Got it. Okay. Um, <laughs> I also just thought it would be clever and funny. but I, I think it is going to be clever and funny. So uh, if you want to see these clever and funny things that we do and we just kind of um, elusively talk about on the podcast, <laughs> you must become a patron and you can become a patron for as little as $2 a month. That's less than like a cent a day. No, 10 cents a day. That's less than I get. Math is hard. It can be. Yeah. <laughs> Um, we are not a math podcast. Uh, no, no. Uh, but yeah, you can become a patron at 5050 Arts Production is where you can find us or just go to our website, campfireclassics.com, and the link is right there because we run both of the companies. Yeah. It's, it's, it's the same thing. Confusing and very, very inbred. We, <laughs> you know what? That kind of goes with our author today. 
Oh my. Um, so are, are, are we there they're, already? Well, no, but their parent, you said inbred and their parents, uh, were first cousins. So, okay. I actually wrote in the fun facts that we will get to soon. I went eek. <laughs> Yeep. Yeep. Do we just do that? I mean, we started with a flashbang of like, hey, give us money. If we're going to say, hey, give us money, we should probably get to the good shit. I guess. Would you like to get to the good shit, people? All right, let's get to the good shit. All right, so here's the good shit. So, this uh, is what we do. Welcome to Campfire Classics, a literary podcast, in case you couldn't tell from that. Literary comedy. <laughs> <laughs> it is definitely under a multiple umbrella. Uh, where every week we we try to read stories that were written before now but not read before now. True. I, I think a lot of them have been read, but definitely not in the way we do Well, it. and certainly not by us. Not by us. That's that's very true. None of these stories have been previously read by us. Uh, the person that picks the story does as little research as possible into the actual story. Um, but we do give some fun facts about the author. And then the next week, Ken does the same thing for me and yeah. vice versa. And it, yeah, hilarity ensues. Hopefully. And sometimes really, really amazing stories. Like A shocking number of really quality stories, particularly in this season two. Season two of Campfire Classics. Campfire Classics season two, Electric Boogaloo. The saga <laughs> continues. Yeah. We need a T-shirt that says that. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty cool. Work on so, screen printing. So would you, uh, this week, I'm picking the author and the story. So yeah. I guess I can just get to the goods. Yeah, right? let's, let's, um, give me something, show me something good. good. Oh, <laughs> All right. So uh, on that theme of Boogaloo Boogie in the 70s, uh, we're going to jump back to 1904. Uh, okay. When our author, Henry Graham Greene, was born. Henry Green. So we got a new author. All right. A new author. He was born October 2nd, 1904. He's a British writer and journalist and regarded uh, by many as one of the leading British novelists of the 20th century. Cool. So he was more famous for his novels, but also wrote short stories because that's how people made money. Yeah. So he was born in 1904 at St. John's House, which was a boarding house where his father was the headmaster. So he and his six siblings, Ooh. yeah, yeah, grew up on, in like a boarding house. So they grew up around a lot of a lot of other kids. Uh, again, he was the fourth of six children. His younger brother Hugh became the director general of the BBC. Wow. And his elder brother, Raymond, uh, became an eminent uh, physician and mountaineer <laughs> in England. <laughs> like, Dr. Mountaineer. It feels like that's a, a show that would be on, like, AMC or something. Dr. Bigfoot. Dr. Bigfoot. <laughs> oh, no. Next on the Discovery Channel, Dr. Bigfoot. Trademark, trademark, trademark. <laughs> <laughs> if I see it, I'm going to call you out. So, and as I mentioned during our discussion earlier, his parents were first cousins. Right. Because England, in, you know, the... Well, uh, there aren't that many people there. Odds are. There aren't. And uh, I think this was before, like, his physician brother had discovered genetics and the fact that that's not great. It's not great. <laughs> it's oh, not great. Had... I mean, clearly they had some very successful yeah, children. They did okay, but I want to hear about the other three. Yeah. See, no, notice how we don't hear about any of them. So... Uh, his mother was also cousins with Robert Louis Stevenson. 
because okay. small world. Yeah. <laughs> so they were they were like middle class. It was again very working class family, but mm-hmm. like enough to uh take care of their kids and send them off on their merry way. Yeah. So Henry remembers where he learned for his passion of reading. And he used to go and stay with his, at his uncle's house at Harston House. Harston? Harston House? Har- the Harston does not sound like a British word when you say it out loud. Harston House. It sounds like something from the Wild West. Welcome to Harston House. Harston House. Library's in the back. We learn how to read good here. Uh, Welcome to Harston House, school for kids who don't read good and want to do other things good. Well, and he did. He learned how to read good <laughs> and do other things good. So at Harston House... Uh, this is a quote from him. It was at Harston House I found quite suddenly I could read. The book was Dixon Brett Detective. I didn't want anyone to know of my discovery, so I read only in secret <laughs> in a remote attic. But my mother must have spotted what I was at all the time, for she gave me Ballantine's The Coral Island for the train journey home. Always an interminable journey with a long wait between trains. So he was like this little boy who used to like sneak into the attic to read because he didn't want to seem like he was a nerd. He didn't want to be caught out as a nerd. Yeah. And Aww. his mom caught Poor on. Sweet little closet nerd. Yeah. A mom whose cousin was Robert Louis Stevenson went, Oh, he likes reading. I'm going to get him a book. And so, so became his, uh, his passion for literature. And, um, so he grew up and uh, he grew up agnostic, if not atheist. But when uh, and he went to Oxford and like that's where he got his education and whatnot. But uh, he converted to Catholicism in 1926 because he met his wife and she was Catholic. <laughs> um, her knife was vi- Hottie at church. Yeah. Vivian Dayrell Browning was her name, and he later in life took to calling himself a Catholic agnostic. <laughs> Isn't that most modern Catholics? Yep, that's called that's what we call today recovering Catholics. Um, so Green had two children with Vivian, Lucy, Caroline, and Francis. Um, but beginning in 1946, Green had a quote romance with Catherine Walston the wife of Harry Walston, who was a wealthy farmer and became a future friend of Green's <laughs> after, the, after the affair ended. So that relationship is generally thought to have informed the writing of one of his most famous novels, The End of the Affair. Well, which, spoilers. <laughs> which was published in 1951 when the relationship came to an end. So he used his very much realistic relationship to... But then, like, Harry and Catherine remained friends. <laughs> like, you know, uh, Green had actually left his fam like, when they were, like, the romance began, and then he wanted to have filed for divorce. Um, and so he wanted to leave in 1947, but Vivian refused to give him a divorce because of Catholic teachings. Sure. They, they remained married. They they were separated in 1947. They remained married until his death in 1991. Wow. As to not upset the Catholic Church. That's fucked up, right? <laughs> Should have just gone Church of England. Uh, she was Catholic, clearly, and that very much was important to her because he converted to marry her. So You know what that other Henry did. Yeah, when you just like wouldn't... go create another church. Or, you know, or kill behead people. her. Yeah. 
But either way, uh, they didn't stay together. I mean, clearly the yeah. affair ended and they remained friends. So, you know, life goes on, I guess. So his uh, literary acclaim was uh, pretty widespread. And by like the mid 20th century, he was considered like the premier novelist of the time. And he got a reputation as a major writer for Catholic novels. <laughs> even though he considered himself an agnostic, and then also for thrillers or entertainments, as he called them. So okay. he wrote thrillers. And Jesus and books. Jesus books. <laughs> and I'm like, what? Huh. Um, yeah, so uh, he's, he strongly objected to being described as a Roman Catholic novelist, but that's kind of where people put him. It's like you put art out there and people decide what it is. So like... The Catholic religious themes are at the root of a lot of his writing, but like it doesn't necessarily it's not necessarily praising like what those themes are. Yeah, I feel like that's that's like um people missing the point. Well, that's like calling Dan Brown a Catholic novelist yes. because of the Da, da Vinci, Vinci code. code. Like which I will say made me very interested in like researching yeah. that, but did not paint it in the best light. Yeah. You know? Like, or like calling Nicolas Cage an historical interpreter because of national, national treasure. treasure. <laughs> I'm gonna steal the Declaration of Independence. <laughs> uh, so a few of these books that he wrote that are considered the gold standard of the Catholic novel are "The Power and the Glory," "The Heart of the Matter," and "The End of the Affair," which is that book that he wrote about the affair. Um, now, many of his other works were political and thrillers, or espionages, as he called. Sweet spy novels. Yeah. And he actually, uh, I didn't do a lot of writing about this because, like, it was actually hard to find a lot of details, and that makes sense. He was in Cuba during Castro's time and, like, doing spy work. Awesome. Yeah. So he 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 had an he had adventures. So um and clearly he wrote about them. So he actually traveled a lot to what we would term third world countries or places where like um, poverty was on the rise. And he wrote most of his espionage books about these places. So um, Confidential Agent, The Quiet American was in Central America. Our Man in Havana. Um, so he loved writing these intrigues, these international political espionage stories that were based on experiences he had. So like they were not, they were not, uh, nonfiction, but they were, um, they were based on people he met and like experiences he had. And then he heightened it, yeah. you know, um, so Green also lived with, uh, one of the first like documented cases of bipolar disorder. Um, yeah, so he had a history with depression um, and it had a profound effect on his writing and his personal life. William Golding, who's the author of The Lord of the Flies, yes, was a good friend, and he praised Green as, quote, the ultimate chronicler of 20th century man's consciousness and anxiety because he wrote down a lot about his own struggles. About his, his own brain space. His own brain space. Huh. Um, and he lived with it his whole life. Uh, he uh, passed away from leukemia in uh, April 3rd, 1991. So he had a pretty long life. Almost 90. Yeah. yeah. So he was shortlisted in 1966 and 67 for the Nobel Prize for Literature. He was awarded the 1968 Shakespeare Prize, which is a British uh, writing award. 
and he was he won the 19 or was awarded the 1981 Jerusalem Prize, which is uh, every other year a literary award given to writers who have dealt with themes of human freedom and society. Hmm. Uh, honorar- uh, the honorees include Eugenie Inesco, Arthur Miller, and Joyce Carol Oates. And wow. Many other names that you recognize. Yeah. So, so he did all right. Um uh, he had there was an unfinished manuscript called The Empty Chair, which was a murder mystery. He began writing in 1926. It was discovered in 1908, and it is still being worked on and uh, trying to. They're trying to complete it. Discovered like, in 2008. That's what I meant. What did I say? You said 1908. He's also a time traveler. <laughs> Twist. <laughs> no, uh, it was discovered in 2008, um, and serialization of it has begun. So, like, they're trying to cool. piece it together and whatnot, um, post-mortem. So that is what I have about, uh, again, he had a lot of lives, like a lot of authors yeah. this time. Um, and so we'll probably read him again. He has quite a few short stories, but his name is Henry Graham Green, and you will be reading The End of the Party, which was first published in 1929, but it did not re-up its copyright, so it is in public domain because I found it on Gutenberg and all the other places. Cool. So, uh, so that is what you'll be reading today. Excellent. The end of the party, not the end of the affair. The end of the party. Because we don't have time to read his most famous Catholic novel. About his true life affair. <laughs> yeah, that sounds like a real upper. Let's start the fire. Okay, um, <laughs> record scratch, hold up here. Uh, so I interrupt your regularly scheduled campfire to bring you this story that Heather just shared with me um, while we were taking a pause well, for me I was to emailing you the story. <laughs> get the story so I could read it out loud. And I think this needs to be added to the fun facts. So I send you now to reporter Heather Michelle Lawler from The Field. Hi, this is Heather Michelle Lawler, and I'm reporting to you today some extra fun facts on today's story. Well, today's author. So uh, I was actually doing research. So whenever I'm doing these fun fact research, I know like Ken has this thing. It's it, You have to edit because these people have <laughs> fascinating lives. And this podcast is about the stories, not necessarily about the fun facts, but we want people to learn while they laugh and, you know, hear good literature. So this one came up and uh, I just told Ken and he's like, we have to put that in. So uh, uh, Mr. Green, Mr. Uh, uh, Harry Graham Green, Harry Graham Green uh, also did some writing as a film reviewer. Um, because, you know, writers got to write and got to make the money. Yep. So, uh, it's equivalent to a Folgers jingle. Yes, exactly. <laughs> you got, artists got to do what they got to do. You know, sometimes you got to do the toothbrush commercial because they pay more than anything you'll ever do on stage. Um, so he was film reviewing. This was relatively early in his career. I mean, he was in his like late 30s, 40s. So it was before he was like getting nominated for Nobel Peace Prizes. He did a review for The Night and Day, which was a British, like, magazine, of Wee Willie Winky, which was a Shirley Temple movie that I grew up watching, yeah. I know. Um, I It was not one of my go-tos. Like, I liked Rebecca on the Farm and then uh, um, Little Princess and stuff like that. But Animal crackers in my soup. Yeah, so Shirley Temple, she was nine years old when she was in this film. He wrote a review that just said, quote, Displayed a dubious coquetry. Coquetry? 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 Because coquette. 
Uh, so basically called her, like, was like, a, like uh-oh, coquette. Mm, and a nine. Which appealed to, quote, middle-aged men and clergymen. Whoa! Yeah. Um, so this provoked 20th Century Fox to successfully sue him for 3,500 pounds plus costs. Because apparently that was slander, considered slander. This is not slander. That's calling out like shady ass lecherous sexualization of of young girls, and he basically just called it like it was. And um, yeah, I mean, you watch some of those movies now, and you're like, I see a little Jean Benet Ramsey or like that the toddlers and tiaras situation there. So he just called him out. He got sued. He ended up uh, leaving the UK to live in Mexico after that uh, and uh, ended up uh, getting inspiration to write his masterpiece, The Power and the Glory, which is considered like one of his famous books. So, huh. you know what? You know, sometimes All sometimes right. when you challenge the man, the man wins, but you still uh, did something great. Yeah, so, damn the man. Save the empire. Hell yeah. Rise up. All right, let's read a story. Um, all right, anyway, uh, thank you, Mr. Green, for being cool, and I now take you back to your regularly scheduled campfire. The End of the Party by Graham Green. Apparently that's what he His wrote. His pen name. Peter Morton woke up with a start to face the first light. Rain tapped against the glass. It was January the 5th. Okay, other than the date, that's exactly how I woke up this morning to a storm. Surprise, thunderstorm. Creepy. Crash, boom, bang. He looked across a table on which a nightlight had guttered into a pool of water at the other bed. Francis Morton was still asleep, and Peter lay down again with his eyes on his brother. It amused him to imagine it was himself whom he watched the same hair, the same eyes, the same lips and line of cheek. You're twins. Presumably. It's Dromeo and Antipholus. <laughs> well, well, one of them. Dromeo and Dromeo, <laughs> or, or Antipholus and Antipholus. It's just weird, because they just closed the show about twins. <laughs> but the thought Paul palled? 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 P-A-L-L-E-D? To lose strength or effectiveness. That's the one. Yep. Paul is the pronunciation. It amused him to imagine it was himself whom he watched. The same hair, the same eyes, the same lips and line of cheek. But the thought palled, and the mind went back to the fact which lent the day importance. It was the 5th of January. He could hardly believe a year had passed since Mrs. Fen Falcon had given her last children's party. Ew! <laughs> what What happened to the children? That was just a creepy sentence. Like, <laughs> a year had passed since old Lady F- Falcon threw her last children's, children's party. party. I feel like it's going to be like the baby party. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> if dads start punching each other. Somewhere between the baby party and that creepy masked Christmas party that we read. Yeah, uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Francis turned suddenly upon his back and threw his arm across his face, blocking his mouth. Peter's heart began to beat fast, not with pleasure now, but with uneasiness. He sat up and called across the table. Wake up! 
Francis' shoulders shook, and he waved a clenched fist in the air, but his eyes remained closed. To Peter Morton, the whole room seemed to darken, and he had the impression of a great bird swooping. He cried again, Wake up! Shut up, little brother! I'm sleeping! And once more, there was silver light and the touch of rain on the windows. Francis rubbed his eyes. Did you call out? he asked. (laughs) You are having a bad dream, Peter said. Already, experience had taught him how far their minds reflected each other. But he was the elder by a matter of minutes, (laughs) and that brief extra interval of light, while his brother still struggled in pain and darkness, had given him self-reliance and an instinct of protection towards the other who was afraid of so many things. It's a bro- like twin shit is crazy. Is, can be strange. I have like I have a lot of friends who are twins, and like you hear stories of like when they're like around the world from each other, and they like know what the other's doing or like have a similar thought. Dude, did you eat bread? You know we're allergic to gluten. Yeah, my stomach hurts. Like, what did you eat? Yeah, it's fucking weird. Like, cool, cool. I love, I love, I love me some twin weirdness here. Yep. Anyway, uh, you were having a bad dream. I dreamed that I was dead, Francis said. What was it like? Peter asked. I don't remember, Francis said. You dreamed of a big bird. Did I? The two lay silent in bed, facing each other, the same green eyes, the same nose tilting at the tip, the same firm lips, and the same premature modeling of the chin. The 5th of January, Peter thought again, his mind drifting idly from the image of cakes to the prizes which might be won, egg and spoon races, spearing apples in basins of water. Egg and spoon races. Blind man's bluff. Blind man's bluff? (laughs) That's fucked up. (laughs) Wait, like, make kids walk off a fucking cliff? Oh, it's blind man's buff. I think that's make them work out with a blindfold on. <laughs> Get buff while yeah. blindfolded? Yeah. That sounds fun. I'm pretty uh, sure that's what that game is. Okay. I remember Egg and Spoon. That was a very British, like, I remember playing that in England when you said that. Like, you have to balance the egg on the spoon and it's like a relay race. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the one I'm confused about is, I mean, and I get it, but spearing apples? <laughs> Like, I did bobbing for apples. Yeah, we did bobbing thing for apples. Which, given modern hygiene requirements, will probably disgusting. never happen again. But I, I went bobbing for apples, but spearing apples? Yep. Uh, I don't know what that is. I'm guessing uh, like, something to do with a bow and arrow. I can, and... I can put two and two together. <laughs> that sounds like a really fun game at a children's party. I, mm. I assume it's just like an easier version of shooting fish in a barrel. Yeah, it's just like all the apples are in the barrel, and they're like, here, have this arrow, get one. It's like, stab apple. I like that. I think it should be called stab apple. I like it. Stab apple. I think we should play stab apple. Let's play stab apple. Great. Sounds, uh, Halloween's coming we'll up. Get, we'll get a- Fall's coming up. We'll, we'll get a, like, five-pound bag of apples. Maybe we can do that for my birthday. Float, float them in water, and just, we'll take, <laughs> we'll get the katana. 
and just stab into the water. Oh, we don't want to rush the katana, though. We'll, we'll wipe it off afterwards. Okay, all right. Or we can just use a big-ass knife. That's fine, too. <laughs> stab apple. Or knitting needles, I suppose. <laughs> Do you knit? <laughs> I'll bet there's a knitting needle around somewhere. My mom used to knit. I don't want to go, Francis said suddenly. I suppose Joyce will be there. Mabel Warren, hateful to him, the thought of a party shared with those two. They were older than he. Joyce was 11 and Mabel Warren 13. The long pigtails swung superciliously to a <laughs> masculine stride. Their sex humiliated him. <laughs> And they watched him fumble with his egg from under lowered, scornful lids. And last year, he turned his face away from Peter, his cheeks scarlet. Aww. What's the matter? Peter asked. Oh, nothing. I don't think I'm well. I've got a cold. <laughs> I oughtn't to go to the party. I don't want to go to a birthday party. Peter was puzzled. But Francis, is it a bad cold? It will be a bad cold if I go to the party. <laughs> Perhaps I shall die. Well, then you mustn't go, Peter said, prepared to solve all difficulties with one plain <laughs> sentence. And Francis let his nerves relax, ready to leave everything to Peter. But though he was grateful, he did not turn his face towards his brother. His cheeks still bore the badge of a shameful memory of the game of hide-and-seek last year in the darkened house and how he had screamed when Mabel Warren put her hand suddenly upon him. Ah! <laughs> he had not heard her coming. Girls were like that. <laughs> I can't! the joke that I would normally make because we just did the Shirley Temple thing. I'm just going to imagine they're adults. <laughs> I want to make the joke. I, if my, you're coming, the, you should let people know. The, the line I was, was going to say was well, that hasn't been my experience. Hey! <laughs> Girls, when you're coming, you should let people know. But it should be women when you're coming. You should let yes. people know. Their shoes never squeaked. No boards whined under the tread. They slunk like cats on padded claws. Girls? Yes. <laughs> I this feels like an early like edition of Dennis the Menace. What was the girl's name next door? That, oh, uh, yeah. I don't remember. Oh uh, yeah, like and she had pigtails and like she was always hang like hanging around them. She's in the movie. Um Margaret. 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 All I could think was um, Becky Thatcher. Yes, very some like Becky, but instead they were preteens, so yeah. they're no longer mad at the girls. They're kind of like, oh, that girl I hated at my nine-year-old birthday party, and now I'm 13, and I have a very different feeling about I'm Becky Thatcher. Going to see if I can get her to make some noise. <laughs> when the nurse came in with hot water, Francis lay tranquil, leaving everything to Peter. Peter said, Nurse, Francis has got a cold. The tall, starched woman laid the towels across the cans and said without turning, The washing won't be back till tomorrow. You must lend him some of your handkerchiefs. But nurse, Peter asked, hadn't he better stay in bed? <laughs> 
We'll take him for a good walk this morning, the nurse said. Wind will blow away the germs. Get up now, both of you. And she closed the door behind her. Well, you know what? Wind will blow away the germs right into the person next to you. Man. Isn't that how we're working in the world I, right now? I wish we had her running the CDC. Yeah, if she would have been the president at the time, we wouldn't be in this situation. I'm sorry, Peter said. Why don't you just stay in bed? I'll tell Mother you felt too ill to get up. But rebellion against destiny was not in Francis' power. If he stayed in bed, they would come up and tap his chest and put a thermometer in his mouth and look at his tongue, and they would discover he was malinering. Malinering? Yeah. Like, lying. Li yeah. It was true he felt ill, a sick, empty sensation in his stomach and a rapidly beating heart, but he knew the cause was only fear. Anxiety. <laughs> fear of the party. Anxiety oh, of the party. <laughs> dude. Oh, I feel you, man. Yeah. <laughs> you get, like, social anxiety because you're introvert. I just have generalized anxiety. So I just get like that for most things, but I actually like people. Like, yeah. it's just in general, we both, we feel this, we understand what this child is feeling right now. Fear of the party, fear of being made to hide by himself in the dark, mm. unaccompanied by Peter and with no nightlight to make a blessed breach. No, I'll get up, he said, and then with sudden desperation, but I won't go to Mrs. Hen Falcon's party. I swear on the Bible I won't. Oh, no. Now surely all would be well, he thought. God would not allow him to break so solemn an oath. He would show him a way. Yeah, there these was... are super Catholic novels. <laughs> There was all morning before him and all the afternoon until four o'clock. No need to worry when the grass was still crisp with the early frost. Anything might happen. He might cut himself or break his leg or really catch a bad cold. Yeah. God would manage somehow. God will fix it. Something tells me God does not fix it. <laughs> I don't want to go to this party. It's okay. God will help me. God will break, break my, my leg. leg. He had such confidence in God that when at breakfast his mother said, I hear you have a cold, Francis, he made light of it. All I can see right now is the scene in Mean Girls when Regina asks Karen, or, uh, Karen to go out, and she goes, after she heard her call her stupid, like a stupid hoe, and she's like, I can't go out. I'm sick. <laughs> I hear you have a cold, Francis. He made light of it. We should have heard more about it, his mother said with irony, if there was not a party this evening. <laughs> and Francis Rude. smiled, amazed and daunted by her ignorance of him. Aww. <laughs> his happiness would have lasted longer if, out for a walk that morning... He had not met Joyce. Not Joyce. He was alone with his nurse, for Peter had leave to finish a rabbit hutch in the woodshed. 
If Peter had been there, he would have cared less. The nurse was Peter's nurse also, but now it was as though she were employed only for his sake because he could not be trusted to go for a walk alone. <laughs> Joyce was only two years older, and she was by herself. Uh-oh. She came striding towards them, pigtails flapping. <laughs> she glanced scornfully at Francis and spoke with ostentation to the nurse. Hello, nurse. Are you bringing Francis to the party this evening? Mabel and I are coming. You know this bitch got a crush on him. Maybe the boy just isn't paying attention. <laughs> and she was off again down the street in the direction of Mabel Warren's home, consciously alone and self-sufficient in the long, empty road. <laughs> Such a nice girl, the nurse said. But Francis was silent, He's feeling like, again yeah. the jump, jump of his heart, realizing how soon the hour of the party would arrive. Francis, you're not nervous about the party. I think you have a crush on that little girl. Yeah. <laughs> God had done nothing for him. You know what? That's the quote. That's the quote of the week right there. <laughs> and the minutes flew. They flew too quickly to plan any evasion or even to prepare his heart for the coming ordeal. This poor kid, this is how I feel every time I have to make a phone call. Like, I feel like I have to do prep work and Aww. my heart starts racing and, ah. Uh, this kid is your, like, is your, maybe this is your the story from your childhood that you just don't, from a past life. It'd have to be a past life yeah. because I'm not a twin in this You're life. not a twin and this was in 1929. Yeah. <laughs> so, yes. They flew too quickly to plan any evasion or even to prepare his heart for the coming ordeal. Panic nearly overcame him when, all unready, he found himself standing on the doorstep with coat collar turned up against the cold wind and the nurse's electric torch making a short trail through the darkness. Aww. At four o'clock? Well, I mean, depending on where they are in England, I mean, yeah, for, like, on winter. Like, January 5th? I mean, they're basically at winter solstice. Yeah. Um, and it would start to get dark. I mean, especially if you were up near Scotland. I don't know where this story takes place, but yeah, if you were up far enough, hmm. it'll start to get dark. And like she would have brought that to get home, definitely. And if this little boy is afraid of the dark, yeah. she probably always has always it with her. Always has one, just in yeah. case. Behind him were the lights of the hall and the sound of a servant laying the table for dinner, which his mother and father would eat alone. Rude. He was nearly overcome by the desire to run back into the house and call out to his mother that he would not go to the party, that he dared not go. They could not make him go. He could almost hear himself saying those final words, breaking down forever the barrier of ignorance which saved his mind from his parents' knowledge. I'm afraid of going. I won't go. I daren't go. They'll make me hide in the dark, and I'm afraid of the dark. I'll scream. Scream and scream and scream. Oh, this poor little boy. 
He could see the expression of amazement on his mother's face, and then the cold confidence of a grown-up's retort. Don't be silly. You must go. We've accepted Mrs. Hen Falcon's invitation. You know what? Parents just don't understand. It's true. Will Smith said it best Yeah. when he knew. Parents just don't understand. <laughs> but they couldn't make him go. Hesitating on the doorstep while the nurse's feet crunched across the frost-covered grass to the gate, he knew that. He would answer, You can say I'm ill. I won't go. I'm afraid of the dark. And his mother, Don't be silly. You know there's nothing to be afraid of in the dark. But he knew the falsity of that reasoning. He knew how they thought also that there was nothing to fear in death, and how fearfully they avoided the idea of it. But they couldn't make him go to the party. I'll scream! I'll scream! Francis, come along! He heard the nurse's voice across the dimly phosphorescent lawn and saw the yellow circle of her torch wheel from tree to shrub. I'm coming, he called with despair. He Where's couldn't... Peter? Uh, he has permission to walk alone. It's, yeah. Because he's older by minutes. By minutes, but he also wants to take care of his little brother all the time. Yeah, so... I'm coming, he called with despair. He couldn't bring himself to lay bare his last secrets and end reserve between his mother and himself, for there was still in the last resort a further appeal possible to Mrs. Hen Falcon. He comforted himself with that as he advanced steadily across the hall, very small towards her enormous bulk. <laughs> I wonder if this woman is actually enormous or if it's just, you know, a nine-year-old's brain yeah. going. Um, <laughs> big lady. I also love that, like, their nurse is taking them into this, like, party. I don't, I don't know if it's a birthday party or if it's, it seems like it's a an annual uh, yeah, thing. Yeah, an annual thing. Um, and the parents are just staying home and eating dinner. <laughs> it's like. Yeah, clearly these are all wealthy families. Clearly, because they have a nurse. Yep. But also, like, I like to and think. servants setting the yeah, table. I also like to think that Mrs. Hen Falcon is, like, the local widow or the local, like, spinster and once a year, she has a party for all the kids so that the parents can have one night alone. <laughs> like, <laughs> January 5th is when all the parents make new babies. <laughs> or just have a quiet night in the house. So they have to go to the party. Because it's like, nope, this is a special party just for you. <laughs> and this September, you'll have a new brother or sister. And I was born September 2nd. Maybe, you know, I don't know. <laughs> Gets cold in the winter. <laughs> yep. Uh, Francis, Francis, come along. Ah, yes, her enormous bulk. <laughs> how, could, how could we forget? His heart beat unevenly, but he had control now over his voice, as he said with meticulous accent, Good evening, Mrs. Henfalcon. It was very good of you to ask me to your party. With his strained face lifted towards the curve of her breasts and his polite set speech, he was like an old withered man. Aww. 
As a twin, he was in many ways an only child. To address Peter was to speak to his own image in a mirror, an image a little altered by a flaw in the glass so as to throw back less a likeness of what he was than of what he wished to be. What he would be without his unreasoning fear of darkness, footsteps of strangers, the flight of bats in dusk-filled gardens... Sweet child, said Mrs. Henfalcon absentmindedly before, with a wave of her arms, as though the children were a flock of chickens, she whirled them into her set program of entertainments. Yep, here it is. Egg and spoon races, three-legged races, the spearing of apples. (laughs) Stab apple. Stab apple! Games which held for Francis nothing worse than humiliation. Um, This sounds like when you had to play that, what was that game that Carl always wanted to play in grad school? And you were like, I don't fucking like this game. It gives me severe anxiety. Yeah. And she was like, okay. That's, that is true of um, most theater games. <laughs> The fact that I, mean, I survived I get... theater is incredible. Yeah, I am surprised. I mean, like, I am surprised sometimes because they make you very anxious. But yeah, like, there was one that you were just not having. I can't remember which one it yeah, was. Neither do I. I think it's the, it, well, it's the same part of me that um doesn't that that did really badly on timed math tests. Yeah. Like, yep. I don't. I don't like. I yeah, don't I like don't... being put on the spot. I don't like being put under pressure and not having time to prepare. Yeah. I don't um, I didn't like time tests either. Yeah. Those stress me out. No. Yeah. Oh well. Little Fran little Francis is not enjoying these games because yeah. if he's he I'm guessing he's not very athletic. Or he gets so nervous, yeah. honestly, that he doesn't do well. Yeah. yeah. Games which held for Francis nothing worse than humiliation. And in the frequent intervals when nothing was required of him, he would stand alone in corners as far removed as possible from Mabel Warren's scornful gaze. (laughs) He was able to plan how he might avoid the approaching terror of the dark. He knew there was nothing to fear until after tea, and... Not until he was sitting down in a pool of yellow radiance cast by the ten candles on Colin Hen Falcon's birthday cake. It is a birthday. All right, so Mrs. Hen Falcon has a child. Yep. Okay. Named Colin, who's ten. All right, so they're in the same grade. Did he become fully conscious of the imminence of what he feared? He heard Joyce's high voice down the table. After tea, we are going to play hide-and-seek in the dark. Joyce just wants to, like, make out with him. Yeah. <laughs> she just she wants to play seven minutes in heaven. She wants to play seven minutes in heaven because she's 11 or 12, so. <laughs> oh, no, Peter said, watching Francis' troubled face. Don't let's. We play that every year. Nice thinking, Francis. Be like, that's boring. 
But it's in the program, cried Mabel Warren. I saw it myself. I looked over Mrs. Henfalcon's shoulder. Five o'clock tea, a quarter to six to half past, hide and seek in the dark. It's all written down in the program. Uh, Mrs. Henfalcon needs to chill the fuck out. It's a children's birthday party. Right? <laughs> I love that there's a fucking program like it's a wedding or it's like... Like a, a Sondheim musical. It's like, okay, why is there a stage manager for this children's birthday party? Schedule for a bunch of third graders. Yeah, it's like, come on. <laughs> Here's the schedule. Show up, play with shit, eat sugar, go home. Yeah, like, <laughs> come on. Peter did not argue. For if hide and seek had been inserted in Mrs. Henfalcon's program, nothing which he could say would avert it. Oh, it wasn't Francis that said, let's not play it. Peter came to his brother's. Yes. Aww, Peter said, okay. watching Francis' troubled face. Oh, yeah. sweet Peter. What a, good, what a good brother. He asked for another piece of birthday cake and sipped his tea. Slowly. <laughs> Perhaps it might be possible to delay the game for a quarter of an hour. Allow Francis at least a few extra minutes to form a plan. But even in that, Peter failed, for children were already leaving the table in twos and threes. It was his third failure, and again he saw a great bird darken his brother's face with its wings. But he abraded himself silently for his folly, then finished his cake, encouraged by the memory of that adult refrain, There's nothing to fear in the dark. I have a terrible feeling that there is something to fear in the dark in this story. <laughs> That's have, not just the little girls. I have two terrible fears. Two suspicions. Okay. One, that there is something to fear in the dark. And two, that there is no Peter. Oh my god! That's like a beautiful mind shit. I was thinking more Fight Club, but... Yeah, but same. I mean, yeah. same kind of story, don't they? They both have, like, some sort of schizophrenia or, like... Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. That Tyler Durden... Is, spoilers! <laughs> Tyler Durden is, like... Is his other... His other self. self. His other half. Like, yeah. the half that he doesn't let people see. Or, like... Yeah. Like, it's, the, that, it's what he wishes he could the, be. The more aggressive, more yeah. confident... Yeah. Whereas, like, Beautiful Mind, he had, like, friend, he had these friends, images yeah. that, like, gave him the confidence to do yeah. things that he didn't have the confidence to do. Ooh, ooh, we might have to edit that out. Go, go for it. The last to leave the table, the brothers came together to the hall to meet the mustering and impatient eyes of Mrs. Hen Falcon. And now, she said, we will play hide and seek in, in the, the dark. dark. <laughs> like, what the fuck? Who plays hide and seek in the dark? It's hide and seek. Just fucking hide. It doesn't yeah. matter if the lights are off or not. I don't know. Peter watched his brother and saw the lips tighten. Francis, he knew, had feared this moment from the beginning of the party, had tried to meet it with courage, and had abandoned the attempt. He must have prayed for cunning to evade the game, which was now welcomed with cries of excitement by all the other children. Oh, do let's! We must pick sides! Is any of the house out of bounds? Where shall home be? 
Oh my God. This is well written because that's exactly what children say and do. That's real. I think, said Francis Morton, approaching Mrs. Hen Falcon, his eyes focused unwaveringly on her exuberant breasts. So basically, Mrs. Hen Falcon is Amy Poehler in Mean Girls. She's the mom <laughs> that just got the boob job, and apparently her nipples never went down. So it's just like breasts. <laughs> I think said Francis Morton, approaching Mrs. Hen Falcon, his eyes focused unwaveringly on her exuberant breasts. It will be no use my playing. My nurse will be calling for me very soon. Oh, but your nurse can wait, Francis, said Mrs. Hen Falcon, while she clapped her hands together to summon to her side the few children who were already straying up the wide staircase to upper floors. Your mother will never mind. That had been the limit of Francis' cunning. Take a hint, bitch. <laughs> He had refused to believe that so well-prepared an excuse could fail. All that he could say now, still in the precise tone which other children hated, thinking it a symbol of conceit, was, I think I had better not play. He stood motionless, retaining, though afraid, unmoved features. But the knowledge of his terror, or the reflection of the terror itself, reached his brother's brain. For the moment, Peter Morton could have cried aloud with the fear of bright lights going out, leaving him alone in an island of dark, surrounded by the gentle lappings of strange footsteps. Then he remembered that the fear was not his own, but his brother's. He said impulsively to Mrs. Henfalcon, "'Please, I don't think Francis should play. The dark makes him jump so.' They were the wrong words. Six children began to sing, "'Cowardy, cowardy custard!' Uh. Turning, torturing faces with the vacancy of wide sunflowers toward Francis Morton. Fuck you, kids. You're the worst. Burn in hell. Yeah, I said it. Wow. Kids are mean. It's interesting to me that that last fun fact we snuck in was him leaping to the defense of children, and then this is all about defense of children. Defense of children. Or, well, you know. he grew up at a boarding house, so, like, yeah. he grew up, like, around kids that were away from their families, and, like, he himself struggled with bipolar and anxiety and depression, and so he probably you know, experienced some of this as a child and saw other kids experience it. Without looking at his brother, Francis said, Of course I'll play. I'm not afraid. I only thought... But he was already forgotten by his human tormentors. Uh. The children scrambled round Mrs. Henfalcon, their shrill voices pecking at her with questions and suggestions. Yes, Anywhere in the house, we will turn out all the lights. Yes, you can hide in the cupboards. You must stay hidden as long as you can. There will be no home. There will be no home? That's terrifying. <laughs> <laughs> Holy shit. <laughs> you must stay hidden forever. You can't go home. Yeah. 
That's terrifying. I think if home means base. Yeah. I'm I guessing. Mean, I, I, it's so this seems to me like it's, um, uh, like those, the, like the, capture the flag yeah, type or situation. Like the, or like those night games that you'd yeah. play. You go outside and it's. Got, we had gotcha. We had uh, Nerf guns and you yeah. had to like stay hidden. And then if someone came up and from the other team, if you got them with the Nerf gun, they had to like go like they were in like time or they were out of the game for like five minutes and then they yeah. came back in and yeah. Yeah, it sounds like one of those kinds of games, like camp, what you play at camp. Yeah, except that in this case, it's, it's hide just and seek. hide forever. So really, Miss Henfal- uh, Lady Henfalcon just wants some time to drink her martini and yeah. not deal with the kids for a while. She just, she just wants some alone time. She's like, yeah, go hide, because no one's going to come find you, apparently. Mom, are you looking? Yeah. I'm hiding. Are you looking? Yeah, sweetie. Yeah. Yeah, I'm definitely uh Yeah, definitely everyone looking. hides so good. That's why she can schedule how long the game is going to last so well. She knows. Because she knows. I need 45 minutes. To myself. To myself. <laughs> Peter stood apart, ashamed of the clumsy manner in which he had tried to help his brother. Now he could feel creeping in at the corners of his brain all Francis' resentment of his championing. <laughs> Several children ran upstairs, and the lights on the top floor went out. Darkness came down like the wings of a bat and settled on the landing. Others began to put out the lights on the edge of the hall till the children were all gathered in the central radiance of the chandelier while the bats squatted round on hooded wings and waited for that, too. To be extinguished. Why are there bats in this house? Or is think, that a metaphor? I think there are bats in Francis' brain. In his brain. Okay, I was like, I was like, where the fuck? Why are they at the local witch's house? Like, why are there bats everywhere? You and Francis are on the hiding side, a tall girl said. And then the light was gone. <gasps> and the carpet wavered under his feet with the sibilance of footfalls, like small cold drafts creeping away into corners. Where's Francis, he wondered. If I join him, he'll be less frightened of all these sounds. These sounds were the casing of silence, the squeak of a loose board, the cautious closing of a cupboard door, the whine of a finger drawn along polished wood. Ugh. All of that is the reason that I have trouble sleeping when it's really quiet. Yeah, I like seriously. That's why I sleep with a fan. It's not. Like, I it's, have to. It's not the quiet. It's the fact that like when there's something that's not quiet. Yeah. Yeah. When it's when it's super quiet at night, if there is a squirrel playing in a tree outside, that shit is gonna keep me awake. It's like, do we need to like? What do we need to do? Get a weapon. <laughs> Peter stood in the center of the dark, deserted floor, not listening but waiting for the idea of his brother's whereabouts to enter his brain. But Francis crouched with his fingers on his ears, eyes uselessly closed, mind numbed against impressions, and only a sense of strain could cross the gap of dark. Then a voice called, Coming! Ready or not, here I come, you can't hide. Gonna find you. It's a 1990s song. I believe you. A hip hop song. I believe you. Okay. 
Then a voice called, Coming! And as though his brother's self-possession had been shattered by the sudden cry, Peter Morton jumped with his fear. But it was not his own fear. What in his brother was a burning panic was in him an altruistic emotion that left the reason unimpaired. Where, if I were Francis, should I hide? And because he was, if not Francis himself, at least a mirror to him, the answer was immediate. Between the oak bookcase on the left of the study door and the leather settee. Between the twins, there could be no jargon of telepathy. They had been together in the womb, and they could not be parted. Peter Morton tiptoed towards Francis' hiding place. Occasionally, a board rattled, and because he feared to be caught by one of the soft questers through the dark, he bent and untied his laces. A tag stuck the floor, and the metallic sound set a host of cautious feet moving in his direction. But by that time, he was in his stockings and could have laughed inwardly at the pursuit had not the noise of someone stumbling on his abandoned shoes made his heart trip. No more boards revealed Peter Morton's progress. Smart kid. Yeah. Take off the shoes. Yeah, he's like, I'm going to tiptoe. I'm also going to booby trap the fuck out of this house so I can hear when people yep. are moving. Yeah. On stockinged feet, he moved silently and unerringly towards his object. Instinct told him he was near the wall, and extending a hand, he laid the fingers across his brother's face. Francis did not cry out, but the leap of his own heart revealed to Peter a proportion of Francis' terror. It's all right, he whispered, feeling down the squatting figure until he captured a clenched hand. It's only me. I'll stay with you. And grasping the other tightly, he listened to the cascade of whispers his utterance had caused to fall. A hand touched the bookcase close to Peter's head, and he was aware of how Francis' fear continued in spite of his presence. It was less intense, more bearable, he hoped, but it remained. He knew that it was his brother's fear and not his own that he experienced. The dark, to him, was only an absence of light. The groping hand, that of a familiar child, patiently he waited to be found. He did not speak again, for between Francis and himself was the most intimate communion. By way of joined hands, thought could flow more swiftly than lips could shape themselves round words. He could experience the whole progress of his brother's emotion from the leap of panic at the unexpected contact to the steady pulse of fear, which now went on and on with the regularity of a heartbeat. Peter Morton thought with intensity, I am here. You needn't be afraid. The lights will go on again soon. That rustle, that movement is nothing to fear. Only Joyce, only Mabel Warren. Stupid girls, they have cooties. He bombarded the drooping form with thoughts of safety. 
but he was conscious that the fear continued. They are beginning to whisper together. They are tired of looking for us. The lights will go on soon. We shall have one. Don't be afraid. That was someone on the stairs. I believe it's Mrs. Henfalcon. Listen. They are feeling for the lights. Feet moving on a carpet. Hands brushing a wall. A curtain pulled apart. A clicking handle. The opening of a cupboard door. In the case above their heads, a loose book shifted under a touch. Only Joyce. Only Mabel Warren. Only Mrs. Henfalcon a crescendo of reassuring thought before the chandelier burst like a fruit tree into bloom. Yay! The voice of children rose shrilly with radiance. Where's Peter? Have you looked upstairs? Where's Francis? But they were silenced again by Mrs. Henfalcon's scream. But she was not the first to notice Francis Morton's stillness. <gasps> where he had collapsed against the wall with the touch of his brother's hand. He continued to hold the clenched fingers in an arid and puzzled grief. It was not merely that his brother was dead. What? His brain, too young to realize the full paradox, wondered with an obscure self-pity why it was that the pulse of his brother's fear went on and on when Francis was now where he had always been told there was no more terror and no more darkness. The fuck? So yeah, there was something super fucked up coming. Oh my god. Uh, so is the moral of that story to be afraid of the dark? Um I don't I don't know if there is a moral to that story or if there is it's like just be cool. He like literally died of fear. Yeah. That's so scary and so sad. And it was from his brother who was trying to help him. Yeah. Oh my God. Also, those kids fucking suck. Yeah. And also does so say all those people suck. The kid kept being like, I don't want to play. I don't want to play. Like sometimes you gotta listen to what people say. Yeah. And there's a reason they don't want to do things. Like I get it. The world is rough, but like if some kid doesn't want to play in the dark, then let them not play in the dark. Yep, that kind of anxiety is real. That got dark. Yeah. It's one of uh Ooh. So thank you for joining us I for wasn't one of our maudlin that. stories. Well, it like it wasn't like it, I did not expect it to go there. <laughs> like like you know, you expect it to end and like I don't I don't know how that was how I was expecting that one to end. I mean, they kept alluding to like bad things. Like yeah. the Well, I guess the first well, the, the very first scene he dreamed he died. Yeah. It's not a great start. I guess yeah, it's a little premonition there. Yeah, a yeah. little, little bit of foreshadowing on that one. Again, listen to people. If they have anxiety about things or if your like instinct is telling you something, listen to it. That's what it's there for. Yeah. But, you know, um Francis, uh, Francis will watch over Peter forever and always. Um, and by that, I mean probably haunt the shit out of him for killing, yeah, for him. killing him. Oh, that's fucked up. Yeah. Yeah. The ghost of your twin brother spending the rest of your life haunting you. Oh, shit. Uh-uh. Well, <laughs> oh, and then there's like, a movie. 
And then what happens if the ghost of your twin brother possesses you? Oh, fuck. Maybe that's why he was considered a Catholic novelist, because he, uh, you know, uh, people people died. And And you know how Catholics die. Well, they believe in, like, the afterlife, so maybe you're not supposed to, like, people are like, well, they're in a better place. I'm like, a nine-year-old just died playing hide-and-seek. Go fuck yourself. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know. But, yeah, I mean, that would, like, I'm thinking of exorcism is very is a thing of the Catholic Church. Yeah. So, like, yeah. I'm, I'm interested in, like, what that would, what that kind of story would be. Yeah. So the moral of this week's episode is don't force kids to play games. <laughs> don't uh, make kids play in the dark. Are you that afraid of the creepy. dark? Yeah, that's very much like... Yes. I am. <laughs> Thank uh, you. I am afraid of the dark, and you know why? Because that kid died playing hide and seek. <laughs> uh, it's, it has what it is, is it has a very um, Hans Christian Andersen yes. feel to it. Where like it, it feels like the sort of thing where I like, started writing the story and then just kind of went, yep, I think the kid dies. Yeah, okay. that's definitely how it happens. Okay. Yep. And then Disney will take it and make it into like Freaky Friday or something. <laughs> or uh, no, it's the parent trap. The parent trap. <laughs> this story was the inspiration, the inspiration yeah. for parent trap. Yeah, they just disney it th- real hard. really changed the story around. <laughs> anyway... I think that's all. If you've made it this far into the episode, and I know that you have because you are listening listening. to me right now, um, let us know what you thought of this story. Send us a message, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. I don't think we have a MySpace. Uh, I don't think MySpace exists anymore. (laughs) uh, Gmail, 5050rsproduction at gmail.com. Send us a message. Do the thing. Tell five friends. And send us the phrase, let them know when you're coming. Ready or not, here I come. You can't hide. Next week's my birthday episode. Yay! Happy birthday episode! Uh, so we'll do something birthday related next week. It'll Yee. be slappy happy. Slappy hap! Um, yeah, so until next week, stay out of the shadows. This has been Campfire Classics, where we try to read those books that look really good on your shelf. Yeah.